Welcome, I'm Doug Morgan, and you're listening to Uncommon Sense, where we hunt for the truth in the topics you're not supposed to talk about, Christianity and politics. As many of you may know, if you listen regularly to the podcast, I am helping with a campaign for Heidi St. John for Congress. Here in the Pacific Northwest, we've had a representative here who is a rhino, a Republican in name only. And um, she has done a lot of things where you just kind of have to hold your nose. <laughs> she, she voted for impeachment of Donald Trump. Uh, she also voted against building a border wall to the south. And it's just been one of those things where we have wanted somebody to run against her. Uh, this is Jamie Herrera Butler. But um, we just didn't really have a choice. Uh, it was either vote for her or vote for somebody even worse. So <laughs> so um, now we have a choice coming up. And this is Heidi St. John. And I'm working with her campaign. Well, we put on a few freedom rallies last week with the head of uh, Patriot Academy. You may have heard of him, Rick Green. Wonderful stand-up guy. If you can, uh, you know, if you have to Google him or uh, find out more about Patriot Academy, he's doing wonderful things. Uh, after they spoke, we had a, a Q&A time, a question and answer time, where people from the audience could ask questions of the speakers. And the first rally, actually, we drew uh, almost 600 people. And many wanted to come and ask their question. And the question that was asked more times than anything else had to do with voter integrity. They wanted to know what could be done about the integrity of their vote. If they were going to cast a vote, it needed to count. And there is a real sentiment out there that is developing that says, you know, if there is just going to be widespread voter fraud, then why vote at all? Well, first of all, that is exactly what those that are trying to cheat want you to think. They want you to be discouraged and they don't want you to vote. If you don't vote, they don't have to cheat at all. <laughs> so, so it's kind of a win-win for them if you develop that kind of sentiment. But second, working to ensure fair elections is the only way our country survives. This is done at, at the local level. It can't be done at the federal level. And I've maintained that the last presidential election was fraught with problems. There were so many undeniable instances of voter fraud, fraud and tampering with that election. When I voice my opinion on the matter, I get a throng of liberals that say things like, let it go, or are you still hung up on that? <laughs> Whenever I start pointing out the inconsistencies of the election, they always regurgitate that it has already been settled in the court system and they found no fraud. Well, this, of course, is just completely false. <laughs> yes, there have been several court cases in many different states having to do with the election of 2020, but none of them have gotten to the meat of the matter. The, the vast majority were ruled against or even just simply thrown out over procedural objections, not the facts of the case. 
Now, many liberals saw President Donald Trump as the great Satan. <laughs> they, they caught themselves, um, you know, just being caught up in this untreated Trump derangement syndrome for the last four years. And many were caught mumbling things like, orange man, bad, bad orange man. <laughs> it it had side effects too. Things like supporting anything uh, President Trump was opposed to or uh, opposing anything that he was supporting. It did not matter what it was. If Trump was on the side of an issue, they would take the opposite view. I truly think that that President Trump would say and do certain things just to play with him and their liberal media counterparts. Uh, he would say things and just watch how they would react. It did not matter if this stance made them look hypocritical, making sure that they were on the opposite side of things from him was the main priority for them. They would do and say anything, no matter how true it was, to try to make him look bad. And if he said that, for example, water was good for you and to stay healthy, uh, you had to drink more, You then they would start protesting about indoor plumbing <laughs> and how they wanted more CO2 in the air to create global warming, to evaporate as much water as possible. I mean, it really got that bad. Many of you lived through it and you saw it for yourself. So given this, is it any wonder that they would try to rig the 2020 general election? Well, no, absolutely not. And in, emboldened by the cover given to them by the liberal mass media, it was executed. They picked key pivotal states and proceeded to lay the, the framework even before the election began. They, they were opposing things that would make voter rolls more um, inaccurate. Um, they are more accurate. I mean, there, there were a lot of voter rolls that had a lot of dead people involved in them. And they opposed taking those things out, including court systems that said they couldn't. Judges that said that this was okay. Supporting illegal procedures that allowed for fraud all in the name of COVID. So, after the election, and many of these inconsistencies, statistical impossibilities, and, and fraudulent actions were being brought to light, many conservatives put their hopes on court cases that were being filled, filed on, on Trump's behalf. Many thought that the courts will see the, the evidence and throw out many of these you know, swing state elections, and it would shine a light on on such an unfair election. But as time went on, this just did not happen. Court after court throughout the cases without even hearing them in many cases. If they did get a hearing, they were not really about the facts of fraud. This this was this was very frustrating for many and and we see the frustration coming out today in those that are very concerned about voter integrity. Now, now that, that, that we are almost a year beyond the election, I felt it was time to take a look back 
at what happened in that election and, and really more specifically what happened in the courtroom. Now, Molly Hemingway is, uh, just, just came out with a book yesterday entitled Rigged, How the Media, Big Tech, and the Democrats Seized Our Elections. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a book that was, that's, that's published by uh, Regency uh, Publishing. I, I want to read to you a small excerpt from it that I think you're going to find very interesting. And she says the, the Pennsylvania Trump team had previously decided to sue in federal court on the issue of how ballots were being treated differently in different areas of the state, filing in the Middle District of Pennsylvania. Since ballots across the state were counted accordingly to dramatically different legal protocols, the case alleged the state had violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, mandating uniform, uniform legal treatment for Americans. It was the same argument that had merit in Bush v. Gore, the federal case that determined who would be the 43rd president of the United States. Now, Kearns, with the help of powerhouse law firm Porter Wright, filed the case. The judge set a tight and aggressive schedule. Briefs were due later that week, and the hearing was scheduled for the following Tuesday. The Lincoln Project, a Democratic political action committee that bills itself as a group of former Republicans, had learned uh, that uh, had learned of the lawsuit and began the campaign of personal destruction against the lawyers working the case. They published the names of Ron Hicks, Carolyn McGee, and two attorneys from uh, with with a Porter Wright uh, law firm, the Pittsburgh law firm that that was working the the project uh, for the Pennsylvania voters. Now, quote, here are two attorneys attempting to help Trump overturn the will of the Pennsylvania people, unquote. It was a, tw a tweet from, uh, from the group. Um, and it was from a group that, that said that they were identifying them uh, with, with their name and their photos, making them famous, they said. Within minutes, the law firm was being deluged with vulgar and vicious attacks as well as even death threats. Any attorney working on the case was being verbally assaulted. Kearns was repeatedly called, and some of these things I, I can't repeat because this is a family podcast, but, I mean, we're talking the, the worst things possible, and not, not just traitor and stupid and, you know, treacherous and Nazi and all this kind of stuff, but just just terrible F-word things that you just, if, if you can think it, they were called it. Some expressed hope that she would lose her possessions, her law license, and her life even. Quote, we know where you live, where your office is, and where your court dates will be. Thousands of us are, will wait for you outside licking our chops. You and your partners on this case are scumbag pieces of mm, poop. And, and I'd love for nothing more than to see you begging for your life, wrote one e emailer. Quote, the people will rise, the mobs will ascend on you and your colleagues, and you will die a painful and scary death. This country knows how to deal with treason. In addition to threats such as this, two explicit death threats brought the attention of the FBI, actually. It was one thing to have to field threats and attacks um, from random supporters of Democrats, 
that that was almost to be expected in in highly politicized you know litigation such as this but one of the harassing phone calls came from an attorney in the Washington DC office of Kirkland Ellis Kirkland and Ellis the outside counsel to Buckvar the the code of professional conduct for legal practitioners in the middle district of Pennsylvania includes a, a commitment to this and, and listen to this. It, it's a commitment to treat with civility and respect the lawyers, clients, opposing parties, the court, and all the officials with whom I work, unquote. When Kirkland and Ellis was notified of the voicemail attack, the firm at first suggested it might not have been one from its attorneys, but later the firm admitted it had come from one of its attorneys. And even if he was not working on the particular election lawsuit and and acknowledged that it was uh, discourteous and not appropriate, (laughs) Kearns asked the judge to sanction the firm for the shocking behavior of one of its lawyers. Quote, it is sad that we currently reside in a world where Abuse and harassment are the costs of taking on a, a representation unpopular with some. It is sanctionable when that abuse and harassment comes from an elite law firm representing the state and the Secretary of State, she told the judge. On Thursday, Porter Wright withdrew from the case. The threats from the Democratic mobs were endangering the firms and and their clients. Kearns was now the only public face representing the Trump campaign in the lawsuit. The briefs were due the next day. In Porter Wright's absence, the Trump campaign brought on respected Texas attorneys, John Scott and Douglas Brian Hughes. Helping with the briefs were a slew of former Supreme Court clerks, avoiding leftist mobs by working behind the scenes to get the case through its hearings. It was the best shot the Trump campaign had, and the the facts of the case were in their favor. The Texas attorneys entered into the case. To, To practice law in a state, attorneys have to be admitted to the bar. And if they haven't been admitted but desire to participate in a particular case, they can be allowed to participate in what's called pro hack vice, which is Latin for um, for this occasion. The attorney who requests the authorization has to request permission from the court and usually gets the main local attorney on the case to sponsor his or her participation. Kearns had no problem agreeing to sponsor the Texas attorneys, and they granted her request to admit them. Prior to the cases being heard, Rudy Giuliani had held a press conference at the Four Seasons uh, Total Landing uh, Landscaping Company, where instead of talking about all of the legitimate issues affecting the Pennsylvania election, and there were so many, <laughs> really, he put forth dramatic claims about voter fraud. The first person he brought up uh, as a witness to the irregularities was a man named Daryl Brooks, who said that he was a paid GOP poll watcher. They did not allow us to see anything, he said. Uh, Was it corrupt or not? 
but give us an opportunity as poll watchers to view all the documents, all of the ballots, said Brooks. But in addition to being a convicted sex offender with strong Democratic Party ties, Brooks was well known as a perennial candidate in New Jersey, and he was not an ideal witness, to put it mildly, really. <laughs> the, the veteran Republican lawyers were at best confused by Giuliani's approach and at worst completely opposed to it. Giuliani called Kearns and told her he was taking over her Pennsylvania litigation, and she didn't agree with the direction he wanted to take the federal case. And so she was not willing to sponsor his participation, and as she had done, of course, for the Texas lawyers. It wouldn't matter. Giuliani found another attorney to help him enter into the case, and he took it over that way. Kearns filed a petition to withdraw, as did the two Texas attorneys. And while the Texas attorneys were allowed out of the case, Kearns was not permitted out because the departure of the Porter Wright attorneys the judge was uh, adamant that at least one attorney should stick with the case all the way. Quote, I believe it best to have some semblance of consistency in counsel ahead of the oral arguments, Judge Matthew Braun wrote, denying her request. The threats against Trump attorneys were out of control at this point. Out of fear for her safety, Kearns was brought through the back door of the courthouse by U.S. Marshals, believe it or not. The hearing went on for hours, with Giuliani talking about fraud that he could not substantiate with evidence. The judge asked Kearns to speak, and she noted that no one was talking about the equal protection, the original complaint that the campaign had filed. Courts took extreme looked ex- extremely unkindly on attorneys who failed to stick with the arguments in the original complaints. Kearns asked again to be let out of the case that was running off the rails. Giuliani asked her to stay, and she called the judge the next day and asked to be let out and was finally allowed off the case. The judge quickly approved the defendant's motion to dismiss in a blistering opinion, saying Giuliani had presented the court with sustained legal arguments without merit and speculative um, accusations. Now, the Obama-appointed judge had been open to the case and its legal arguments at the beginning, but showed little tolerance for what it had become. Giuliani regularly downplayed very real issues with the 2020 election in Pennsylvania by emphasizing less relevant and less actionable claims. For instance, the, the Public Interest Legal Foundation had sued Pennsylvania over the 20... 1,000 dead people that were on its voter rolls. The group's data, which it filed under seal with the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Pennsylvania, showed thousands of dead people on the voter rolls, some of them for many years. It said that hundreds of them had shown up as voters in 2016 and 2018. At here, here's their deal. At least twenty-one thousand dead people on Pennsylvania voter rolls, rolls ninety over ninety-two hundred registrants have been dead for at least five years. At almost two thousand registrants 
had been dead for at least 10 years, and almost 200 registrants had been dead for at least 20 years. And, and this is what Giuliani tweeted on November 6th. Now, media coverage of this tweet and the issue of dead people having you know, been on, on voter rolls was particularly awful. <laughs> uh, they, they said things like, no, 21,000 dead people in Pennsylvania did not vote. Um, this was the New York Times headline on November 6th, although no one had actually made that claim, of course. We, it wasn't claimed that that many people voted. It was claimed that that many people were on the voter rolls. The claim was that dead people's names remained on Pennsylvania's voter rolls after they had died, which increased opportunities for fraud. And the Times dismissed legit, the legitimacy of the case, saying the judge overseeing it was doubtful of it. News organizations purported to check the fact uh, and the facts of whether Pennsylvania had dead people on its rolls. Um, Snopes rated it false, and while factcheck.org said it had thin evidence, the Public Interest Legal Foundation had asked a judge before the election for an injunction to stop any of the dead people listed on the voter rolls from voting, but it wasn't granted. However, less than five months after the November election, Pennsylvania settled with the Public Interest Legal Foundation and agreed to remove the dead voters on its list before the 2021 municipal elections. Still, the focus on the relatively marginal issue of dead people on the voter rolls was far less pertinent than the issue that Kearns and the previous legal team had raised. Kearns' suit identified an issue that had affected all 6.1 million Pennsylvania votes. Her, her suit raised a fundamental legal question, drawing attention to the problems caused when law-abiding voters are treated differently than non-law-abiding voters, depending on where they live in the state. That issue potentially affected the actual outcome of the 2020 race in a way that the dead voter role issue wouldn't or even couldn't. For, for perspective, the, the initial Republican legal strategy was to keep the margin of Biden's lead relatively to total ballots cast down to about a half a percent. The threshold that would trigger uh, an automatic recount, of course. As voters kept being located and counted and Biden would eventually be certified the victor by more than 80,000 votes, this yielding Biden's 1.2% more of the vote than Trump, which, of course, is more than twice of what they needed to prevent a recount. By, by wasting time on less relevant claims, an important lawsuit failed and had catastrophic effects for the remaining legal battles. Pennsylvania would have been the first domino to fall. The Trump campaign in sequence of, of tightly contested courtroom victories, uh, instead, of, in, instead it was the beginning of the end of the campaign's effort to, to hold Democrats accountable for the foul play. 
it also had a, had a ripple effect throughout the legal community. The, the media were soon dismissing all legal challenges as baseless and attempts to prove widespread fraud, ignoring more substantive claims. The avalanche of bad publicity scared off credible lawyers from participating in further election challenges on behalf of of the Trump campaign. And it made judges inclined to view any such challenges, no matter how full of merit they had. And this was unfortunate. Now, I, I felt like, like this was a fair assessment of what happened and what effect it had on the entire effort to shine light on the 2020 general election. It does not diminish the fact that we need to have a system of voting that inspires confidence among the electorate, not suspicion. Doing away with vote by mail, um, instituting voter ID, and allowing observers to view all the counting process is really a good start, in my opinion. But also doing away with egos and having competent individuals and courts holding election offices accountable is another piece of the solution. Liberals will always put intense pressure on those that fight for voter integrity because they cannot win on the playing field of ideas. We have to stand for fair and and a, and a just system of voting or this little experiment <laughs> that we've called America will not last much longer. And you may agree and you may disagree. And I would love to hear from you. You can go always to uncommonsensepodcast.com. Uh, there you can see archived uh, podcasts. You can go back and and you can even see some uh, a podcast that we did. Um, it wasn't that long after the election uh, of of the voter of the different things that that came up when it came to voter fraud. Uh, you can go to our Facebook page. You can go to our Instagram. Would love for you to do that. If you could go there and do us a favor, if you could just hit the like button, you can subscribe uh, to. Uh, the podcast. That would be wonderful. It always helps us. And we'd love to communicate with you. We love to hear the things that you like. And we, we like, we even like to hear the things you don't like. Uh, we, we love open and honest communication. And, and that's what we're all about here at Uncommon Sense Podcast. And again, thank you for listening. This podcast is a production of Morganite Communications. 